Welcome to Mother, the show where we can explore our inner mothers to actualize our greatest selves through interviews with incredible guests, live coaching sessions, and my own experiences. We're going to dive deep into embracing feminine values and reparenting ourselves. So be prepared to show up, hold space, and be mothered in a way you never have before, but have always needed. It's time to rewrite the mother code. Well, I am beyond thrilled, delighted, and excited for this episode of Mother, Rewriting the Mother Code with me, Dr. Gertrude Lyons, that I have the honor and privilege to be speaking with, and you're all going to get to hear from Clark Strand and Perdita Finn. So welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks for having us on. I wish I'd had this show when I was a young mother. I just want to say thank you so much for it, how much you're bringing out there. So thank you. I know. I kind of wish I had this for myself, <laughs> but we found our way, didn't we? We found our way. All right. I'm going to share a little bit, you know, some particulars about Clark and Perdita, and then we're going to launch in because there's so, so, so much great stuff to talk about. Okay. So I have Clark up first here. Clark is a writer, poet, environmentalist, teacher at a weekly haiku challenges, and uh columnist at Tricycle. That's all still valid, right? We're still all Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Written seven books, as well as articles on a variety of religious, spiritual, and ecological themes. Has written for the Washington Post, Huffington Post, New York Times, uh, Newsweek's on Faith blog, Tricycle, Body and Soul, Spirituality and Health, and many more. And Perdita is also an author, um, co-author with Suzanne Saxman of The Reluctant Psychic, began her career as a writer teaching and also training teachers at Columbia University and helping students free their voices and tell their stories, which I love. Also written amazing children's books. (laughs) You might have have to mention some of the names of those as we go along because they're fantastic. And just has been creating empowering learning adventures in her life. She has a book that is coming out in the fall, September of 2023, Take Back the Magic, Getting to Know the Dead, a love story about the long story of our souls. And uh, I'm super excited to read that. And I I was sharing with Perdita and Clark that I was gifted. What I didn't mention were the names of two books that I think we'll probably mostly focus on in this episode, but who knows you know, where we'll go. But I particularly want to honor two of the books. They co-authored a book called The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine, Hidden in the Rosary. There's a lot we want to talk about with that. And then also Clark Uh, One of his books is Waking Up to the Dark, The Black Madonna's Gospel for an Age of Extinction and Collapse. And there's some really juicy, beautiful stuff in there. So, so many ways we could go, but I'd love to just hear the two of you. I just said all these things about you, you know, and the things that you wrote and, but your life is just, you know, you share so much in your books about your path and individually, but then the intersection as your couple, you know, for how these books came to be born and came to life. So, I personally don't know where to start, so I'm hoping you can just pick up anywhere with that for the two of you and your journey, and we'll start there. Well, I'll share with a dream I had 25 years ago, and that you may relate to. I was a young mother. I had two children. We were working at home, but working full-time, and when you're a mom, you're working three full-time jobs simultaneously, you know? 
parents and young parents. And we were looking for spiritual community. Mm. And we'd both been involved in Buddhism, but the kids had to go be outside of the experience. The kids were always being relegated to the back room. And ultimately we left and we ended up at the Episcopal mm. Church. And again, the kids were relegated to the back room and Buddhist that I'd been, of course, I was teaching Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I <laughs> I wanted an experience with the children. I didn't want to be apart from my kids on Sunday. I wanted an experience mm. that integrated them. And I kept having a vision of a group I called in my imagination, Mothers Without Borders, where we'd get together uh, as parents to support each other in the business of parenting through prayer. And that group didn't happen. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to container for it. That group now exists. And it's mm-hmm. the Way of the Rose, which is this group Clark and I started 12 years ago. And it is a non-denominational, fairly feral group (laughs) devoted to the earth and the lady by any name you like to call her Mm. and the rosary and we pray the rosary together which is our container but people come from all different traditions and they come from jewish traditions and catholic and buddhist and nothing and witches and we have young people and old people and grandmothers bring their grandchildren and grandchildren bring their grandmothers and come together to pray the rosary together Mm. And suddenly we have that container and a lot of young moms come and they can Mm. bring their, a lot of young parents are there. And, you know, we need a lot more hands in the room, young parents. So that's the encapsulation of our 30 year journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No. And I love that that was because your journey is so rich and, you know, how from Buddhism to Episcopalian, but everything in between and how you were raised and, you know, that you landed here. I know you speak, you know, often of like the rosary, what? Like I'm (laughs) being guided to like, no, what is that? You know, and one of you would kind of pick it up and then the other. And, you know, I just love that. Neither of us was raised Catholic. It's important to say Exactly. Yeah. We weren't raised Buddhist. We embraced Buddhism later on in life. But yeah, I grew up a Southern Protestant. Uh, where there was basically no divine feminine, you know, no. the Virgin she, she Mary was, was a Galilean housewife at best, right? <laughs> right? She got trotted out once a year and placed on, you know, the church front lawn as part of the of the crutch scene. And that was about it. So I didn't have any experience of that. And I got involved in Zen Buddhism in my late teens. And hmm. Zen was an unapologetically patriarchal religion that actually spoke with pride of its patriarchs and where women were almost never mentioned. And I did that for most of my early, you know, spiritual career. So by the time we uh, came to Our Lady and the Rosary, you know, I I had no preparation for that whatsoever. It was, Mm. it came completely out of left field for me. I had actually been praying the Rosary, you know, I, you know, my forebears were Irish Catholics, and there are a lot of, you know, Boston Irish Catholics in my family, although my parents were avowed atheists and Mm. wouldn't even my grandmother take us to church. So but which of course makes it all very tantalizing. Yes. <laughs> what is this hidden? What is this hidden thing I'm not allowed to do? But and I had converted to Catholicism for about 15 minutes in my early 20s, but I couldn't. I was in fact it was this social justice issues really appealed to me and mm. really did influence me. And I met some extraordinary men and women involved mm. in social justice work, but I did not stay there. And it was a lot of because I had mystical yearnings that did not yeah. feel satisfied. Yeah. And Clark, the Buddhist, (laughs) 
I always say that I have a faithful husband who is promiscuous spiritually. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, that's a great I way was, to put I it. Was very, I was very, very <laughs> faithful to Zen for like 14 years from the time I was 19 until I was like 33. But once, you know, Zen's put me out the other side of itself, uh, spiritually restless, I think, would be, mm. the, you know, very mild way of describing me. I studied everything. Yeah. Deeply, deeply. I rabbis and masters and priests and gurus just coming through the house constantly. And I don't mean he would go deep. Like he would be going down to study with the Hasidic rabbis. And then the next day he'd be meeting with someone for the Jehovah's witness to do Bible study. I mean, I didn't know what to make of the whole thing. Guilty, guilty as charged. (laughs) Well, you know, I, Here's the thing, I, it, you know, I, it took a long time to realize what was going on, but having experienced, you know, uh, first as a Zen Buddhist monk and later as an editor for Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, having experienced sort of the, uh, you know, the modern collapse of, of patriarchy and, and mm-hmm. religious patriarchy, instead of like coming out of that experience as a Zen Buddhist uh, monk and teacher in 1990 and saying, oh, there must be something other than that. I spent 20 years trying to get it right. Uh, so every wow. single tradition I studied for 20 years was some, you know, it was just really more of the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it didn't occur to me that there was, uh, you know, the subtitle for the Way of the Rose is the radical path of the divine feminine hidden in the rosary. Well, it was hidden all right. because I certainly <laughs> I knew that. Not, but, you know, as a young searching. mother, as a young mother, <laughs> yeah, you know, overwhelmed as you are, you know, and you worry, like worry, it becomes your job, mm-hmm. right? And I found myself, Clark taught me to pray the rosary. And it was something to hold on to. Yes. And it was literally like you're in the ER with a child in the middle of the night. You're not going to follow your breath. You're going <laughs> to hold on and say, Mama. Help me. Yeah. Make sure my kid's okay, right? Mm -hmm. And I found myself, and I had no idea Gertrude had explained to anybody else what I was doing. I kept saying, How can I, an ex Buddhist feminist, find everything I need? And the amazing thing was, I would go to bed, I would put the kids to bed at night, and I would be praying the rosary, and I'd be holding the beads, and they would be holding my hair. You know the way children play yes, with their hair? Yes, they re- reach up, and yeah. And and, they're, and I realized what they're doing with my body is what I'm doing with the body of the mother, yes. and that we're feeling, and I, my own mother during this time when my children were young came to live with us, she was dying, mm. and so I was caring for young children and a dying mother, and I needed a mother in the room. Here, here. And, you know, my koan, you know, in Zen, there's a koan, a riddle that's given to you to sort of break open your reality. And my koan that I gave myself was mother of God. Mm. So take God, take this abstraction that we don't know how to get our hands around and give God a mother. And that broke me open. Now, Perdita <laughs> talks about me teaching her the rosary. Yeah. So I actually, the rosary is one of the things I studied, like in this endless crusade through the religions of the world, yeah. basically looking for something that right. makes the world gone mad, right? A mm-hmm. world in, on the midst sure. of species extinction and climate collapse and all of that. And uh, so, you know, I discovered the rosary uh, on a, a teaching trip to the Southwest in Taos, New Mexico. I kept saying, oh, yes. Please Maybe tell the story. Yes, Everywhere, yes. right? Yep. Yeah. It was her feast day two days ago, too. That's right. Oh, it is. Yes. Yeah, on December 12th. 
So, uh, so I came back from that encounter where I saw images of her everywhere. I really had no idea who I was looking at. There was this, I thought of her as a young Mexican girl, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I, I came back from that trip feeling like I needed to learn to pray the rosary. And if I remember correctly, Perdita met me with the kids at the airport. And I, one of the first things I said was, I've got to learn how to pray the rosary. And her <laughs> mouth fell open. <laughs> I, th- I think oh, you've dropped no, a few. Not that, please. Not this again. Please. You've dropped no. a few of these kind of bombs on her. We're going to talk about a couple of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes. But I did. I taught myself the, to say the rosary. And, you know, any eight year old with a diagram can learn it, you know, mm-hmm. like in an afternoon. I mean, that's the beauty of it. It's so simple. So I started praying it, and a strange thing happened. I found myself getting into the deepest places. Like mm-hmm. I had ever experienced as a cloistered Zen Buddhist monk in a remote wow. monastery, like where it would take me four or five days to get in that place of, you know, that deep a, a quiet and a sense of peace. And so I told myself after I want to say two weeks, oh, this is definitely a placebo. Like I am totally talking myself into this. There's no way that this is happening How this like some happen? old grandmother with yes. a bunch of beads and mumbling prayers is actually creating this yeah. experience right i'm just completely talking about so i quit and then what a year or so later you know we were on some long drive and coming down a hill perdita doesn't do well with heights <laughs> so coming down a hill in the mountains and uh she turned to me and she said teach me the rosary Oh, and wow. I was sort of I, stunned. I thought, well, I remembered how to do it. So I taught her. Of course, it connected with her instantly. She has it in her DNA. And so she started praying and she prayed it for years. By and, myself. By herself. And the kids. And with the kids. The kids, kids. The oh, kids with grew the kids. up with. Okay. Meanwhile, I'd moved on to tons of other things. So it was only after about 10 years that I came back to it. You know, this isn't in the book, but it's something I realized after we wrote the book. And about that feeling of peace that comes to you that the rosary, and it might mm-hmm. be in to people, particularly our mothers. A question I began to ask is, why are beads so ubiquitous in religious traditions around the world? Yep. And they are. Every religion has a tradition of using beads for prayer. But even older than that, human beings have been making beads as long as we've been human beings. They found mm-hmm. beads that are over 120,000 years old in Morocco. And making beads is not easy. Like Mm. it takes a lot of work to fashion a bead from stone or shell. And probably they're beads made from wood and clay that are older than that. But I would ask your viewers to take, if you've got a button or a necklace or any kind of bead and to roll it between your thumb and forefinger and begin to notice how it begins to make you feel. Mm. Because that's the secret behind the rosary. Mm which is there is something about that gesture which is profoundly comforting. Mm -hmm. And we might call it fidgeting, you know, we'd have, but it's a kind of fidgeting that is so primarily consoling. And what it is, what I realized with this aha moment, you know, I kept going, what is it? Why does it make me feel so good to pray the rosary? You know, why do I love it so much? And one day when I was praying, Oh, it's the same feeling I had nursing my children. Mm. And in fact, that gesture of holding the bead is the gesture the baby makes to the nipple when they're first born. Love that. And what happens when the baby holds the nipple is that a hormone called prolactin lets down both in the mother's body 
and in the child's body to create that cocooned feeling of nice. calm and peace. It's the same hormone that, you know, birds get when they sit on their eggs. It, we know that feeling, right? If you've yeah. had a child, it's really a kind of, that's the feeling Clark was experiencing. Yeah. Uh, you know, in much of yep. that better book that you mentioned, Waking Up to the Dark, much of the earlier parts of that book uh, deal with a study conducted at the National uh, Institute of Mental Health in the mid-90s about yes. sleep, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you guys are going everywhere I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> please. This no, you do it. This is so perfect. Yeah. Please go <laughs> into that because this really... I've been well. It's de- it's very intimately related to the Rosary yes. and Lady of the Black Madonna and uh, and sleep and darkness. So this researcher named Thomas Ware had had a question. This was the guy who discovered seasonal affective disorder, right? So oh, he was a heavy hitting, yeah, yeah. He was a heavy hitting, <laughs> you know, medical researcher, and he got very curious. He wondered. Do human modern human beings sleep the way uh, prehistoric humans slept? And he began to think about how slowly our bodies and our DNA change, right? Mm-hmm. That we're basically hardwired in certain ways that the modern world overrides. So he wondered, he asked the question, did human beings sleep longer? Did they sleep better? Did they sleep differently before the introduction of what he called light-assisted wakefulness? Mm-hmm. So he took a group of people off the streets of Bethesda, Maryland, just ordinary people. He took them off of all forms of artificial illumination, artificial lighting for 30 days. And for the first three weeks of that time, mostly they just slept about an hour, hour and a half longer, repaying what we're called the national sleep debt, right? Because Americans are so chronically sleep deprived, right? We don't give our comfort. We don't take care of our bodies. We don't give our, ourselves time in the dark, time for dreams and imagination, intimacy, touch, all of those things. We no, deny it's a big, I'm really getting what a big deal this is yeah. uh, from so, your book, but keep going. Yeah. So he took them off of all forms of electrical light for three weeks. They just slept more. After three weeks, every subject in the study started waking up after four hours for two hours of what we're at first just called quiet rest before falling asleep again for another four hours. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Those people describe themselves as having an experience of peace that they had never known before during those two hours. And so Ware thought, you know, he's a scientist, he's a psychobiologist. So he said, let's see what's going on in their bloodstream. So he gave them a hormonal panel and discovered that the hormone prolactin. That's the same one I was talking about. Which lets down in nursing mothers, which keeps birds roosting on their nests and keeps mammals still when they're asleep, right? So they don't move around too much. He discovered that the hormone prolactin, rather than falling as it normally does in, in people when they wake up, once you gave people enough time in the dark, their prolactin levels would remain elevated throughout mm. those two hours. Wow. And there's a famous line from the book of Psalms, uh, or I'm sorry, not the book of Psalms, but the, the song of songs, so the great love poem of the Bible, mm. the erotic love poem of the Bible. The lover says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. And I always thought of that as just poetry, but it's actually right. a description of a state of mind. And that's the state of mind that people get into when they meditate, when they pray the rosary, when they nurse, when they just lie on on the bed in the middle of the day and daydream for half an hour. That is the ancient 
uh, place of peace and renewal that was once basically a middle of the night meditation retreat for every homo sapiens on earth. That everybody had it. So we're now, that's why we're, everyone's searching for yeah. like that time, right? And how do we get it? And you mentioned meditation when it was just a natural part of our daily and you I, know, and cycle. I think for right? our grandmothers, you know, for our ancestral grandmothers, that practice of holding the beads and muttering prayers, which, you know, you mentioned your grandfather prayed the rosary. Mm. A lot of those old rosary prayers had the rosary in their pocket. They didn't go off on a fancy retreat to get this experience. No. They just reached into their pocket and it was instantly available to them. And it was to yeah. drop into that place. Yeah. And it was family centered, like it took place in the home. It wasn't, there was, you know, prior to uh, like Vatican II, the reforms of Vatican II and the Catholic Church in the mid 1960s, the locus of the spiritual life was in the home. And mm -hmm. so people would pray the rosary often as families. Mothers would pray them with their children, like Perdita did with our children growing up. Fathers and grandfathers would come in to say the rosary. So people were having this experience without any kind of like, you know, patriarchal authoritarian priestly oversight, right? Oversight. Nobody's like telling you how to do it. Their neck, telling them how to do it or how to interpret the experiences that they were having. Mm -hmm. My father, who was a very uh, fierce atheist, you know, he'd been raised in an immigrant <laughs> family and had that kind of attitude you have of wanting to be more American and, yeah. Break you know, free. more modern. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a doctor and he always tell disparaging the story of his, one of his many sisters being sick with pneumonia and his mother gathering all the children around the bed to pray the rosary. And he said, oh my God, you know, can you imagine, all, you know, what did she think she was doing? Well, she didn't have any money. Yeah. And there were no antibiotics, and there were no antibiotics in the 1930s. No Advil. No Advil. And her daughter was dying of pneumonia. And I will mm -hmm. just only add that that little girl is yep. still alive at 96 today. Yeah. And it worked. Whatever well, was going on there was all the medicine. that. She was yeah. the longest lived of how many children? Six. Yeah. Six. <laughs> so she got those I, doses, right? Yeah. But I think that the disparaging of this seemingly ordinary magic, and I'll use the word magic, mm. which was often available to women or people who didn't have any other resources. And, you know, People who don't have money, don't have access to healing, they often understand the power of prayer in a way mm -hmm. we have forgotten. I, and this is what I found so stirring. I was saying before the started recording, you know, that reading, I mean, Way of the Rose, I love because it brought me back, you know, to the rosary. And as I mentioned, the connection with my grandfather, both my grandmother and grandfather. Now they didn't, you know, I only remember a few times where we prayed it together. And one time was when my mom was having a, a biopsy, you know, for cancer and stuff. So we got down. I remember being kind of like, okay, you know, <laughs> say the rosary. So, you know, I could see the impact, but I always knew they were doing it. Right. And uh, my grandma died when I was nine and she was, I had a really strong connection with her and it was really hard to lose her. Um, and I took her namesake. So I was raised Trudy. That was my given name, but her name was Gertrude and my mom, you know, so in my thirties, like what I've realized more recently, I think it was more out of fear in my new motherhood. Like I wanted her with me, right? I wanted her. I, I was claiming on the outside, like it's more, you know, it's claiming my more mature womanhood than Trudy, right? Like, so I'm going from Trudy to Gertrude, but it was also just a cry to be like, have my mom, my grandma connected to me, but my grandfather 
very, you know, I can really only remember a handful of like actual conversations with him. He was this quiet man that was always saying the rosary, you know, it was always in his pocket and, you know, he'd walk with it, just everything, you know, you're describing. And it was, you know, just how I knew him. And it wasn't until I was um, an adult and I went to visit him. He was leaving his place. He lived to 98, you know, he was lived alone until he was 95. And so he was leaving his place in Florida um, (laughs) to come, you know, move to assisted living up in Michigan. And I wanted to go say goodbye to that place and just be with him, you know, and I had just started my own growth and spiritual journey. So I'm a little more attuned and aware at that point. And I, and I asked him, I said, you know, grandpa, like what say the rosary all the time, you know, what are you praying for? You know, what he's like, well, I'm praying for you. (laughs) And I burst into tears, just started sobbing at the realization that I've had, you know, this somebody praying for me every day. You know, I had a, my own personal prayer <laughs> and he was so sweet. He's like, you're crying. I'm like, yeah, I am. Crying. <laughs> this is so, this is I, so have moving. Ro- I have two rosaries I pray with mm. and I have two children and I imagine myself as filling them with prayers that one day will go oh my to gosh. that they can pass on. And I think, you know, I do believe objects hold those prayers for us and mm-hmm. It's really powerful. It's one thing for someone to say, oh, you're in my thoughts and prayers. And that feels like prayer suddenly feels less than a thought, right? Right. (laughs) When someone says, I'm going to sit down and pray the rosary for you, you go, okay. A whole rosary, yes. Um, And you know, that's the thing about the rosary too, is that the rosary is, is, that's what it's for. I, I mean, you get the benefits of, you know, a meditative practice, right? A contemplative practice. Mm-hmm. You certainly do, but it's not the point of the rosary. The point of the rosary is to pray for our heart's desire. Mm. And, you know, this was a tradition that was alive uh, in the Catholic Church for, for centuries and only recently, you know, what discouraged. There was mm-hmm. a practice which we continue on way of the rose. Uh, that was just a development of a medieval practice called the 54-day novena, where a person would pray the rosary for 54 days, okay, in order to obtain some sort of uh, grace or petition or favor. And so, you know, they would say the rosary, you know, the sorrowful mysteries one day, uh, I mean, the uh, joyful, sorrowful, uh, and glorious mysteries alternating for 54 days straight. And for the first 27 days, mm. they would pray in petition. And for oh, the wow. last seven days, they would pray in thanks, whether the prayer had been answered yet or not. Oh, and so wow. sort of uh, leaning into that. Yeah. Awesome. And this is what we do perpetually on Way of the Rose. And, and people will come to our group, you know, who like their grandmother was Catholic or something like that. And they'll tell their grandmother, yeah, a part of this group, we pay the 54-day novena. And the grandmothers would say, yeah, I've been praying 54-day novenas for you since you were born. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but we need to find our way back to it, right? And that's how I feel. And your, you know, your book came at just, you know, always things like this come at the right time. I was sharing that the way of the rose was sent to me by, uh, who's now a very dear friend, but at that time I knew as the midwife, uh, I met her because she was a midwife of 
my two daughters. Um, so we've connected around birth and motherhood and, but not so much Mary. So that, uh, a, a new twist on it, but I went seeking my grandfather's rosary. He was buried with his, his rosary, but I had given him a rosary. So that was still available. And I've since like, you know, I have more, I keep them by my bed. I like, you know, I sleep with it. I stay and I've, I've had a few times where, you know, I'm trying to sleep and that anxious feeling comes and I would hold it and would go away. You know, it would. It's what happens, you know, Clark and I yeah. go to bed praying the rosary and one of us always falls asleep before sure. we get to the end. Yeah. We almost never finish it together. Actually, <laughs> if we both finish and we're both awake, we've learned that it's a sign that we need to talk about something. Yeah. <laughs> because but one of us just trusts keeping the other us awake. We once had pre-COVID had an in-person rosary circle here where we live in Woodstock and we had a newcomer come. It was her first time coming to the rosary and it was, you know, about 10 or 12 people who were there praying the rosary. We got to the third mystery, the third decade, the middle of the rosary. And this woman described everyone in the room falling asleep and she didn't know what to do. Within seconds, she realized everyone was asleep in the room. Except her. Except her. And so she just started saying the prayers very quietly and didn't know what to do and felt very embarrassed. And we got to the end of the 10th Hail Mary and everybody woke up and continued praying the rosary. <laughs> and it was, she said it was like magic. And, and, what, and I said, if that's the rosary brings you into these deep, mm. relaxed places. And in fact, what people often find is it brings such rest mm. and such ease that you do find yourself falling asleep. Mm. We would say it's a good thing. You know, you'll come out of it. I often will find myself, you know, two hours later, Clark and I will say, well, I'm going to go have a rosary nap, you know? Yeah, right. (laughs) Absolutely. The rosary is a prayer is, you know, it is specifically designed by our medieval forebears to uh, ease us into a, you know, what some people would call a liminal state, like Mm. somewhere between dreaming and waking. That space in the middle of the night. That space in the middle of the night. It's a visionary place where we get... Uh, where we get messages and we feel comfort and connection uh, and, you know, true rest. And so those, you know, the way the rosary is set up is you have alternating uh, Our Fathers and Hail Marys. There's one Our Father for every 10 Hail Marys. So the Our Father is not really a mantra. It's more, it's a sort of a wakeful sort of prayer. You know, you're praying Mm -hmm. for, you know, forgiveness and for daily bread and for safety and good relations with other people and a wholesome relationship to the planet, basically, in that prayer. Then you say these 10 Hail Marys, and you tend to go really deep. It's a sleepy prayer, mm-hmm. you know, a tantric prayer that really relaxes the body and slows the breathing. And sometimes you'll actually fall sound asleep mm-hmm. in those 10 prayers. It takes about maybe five minutes tops, three to five minutes, depending on how fast you That's- say it is. And Hail Marys, and you can fall sound asleep <laughs> in that time, and then come back up. The, the next Our Father, you know, it's like a that comes along, you know, as you move, make your way through the mysteries, is like a bell that goes mm-hmm. off to sort of wake you up and, and make you resurface. I think there's something. I mean, I think that being able to hold on, we've gotten a lot of faux Buddhism about letting go. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do is we want to be feel held and we mm-hmm. want to hold. I mean, babies want to be held, right? Babies that aren't held die. They have, they need to be. Yeah, exactly. They have to they be have held to be. And, and we have to be held mm-hmm. and we're primates and primates. Right. If you go look at them are holding each other all the time. And I think that that, I think at it's most fundamental. We begin to feel held by the whole cosmos mm-hmm. and that there is 
to feel held by our mother and to know she's really got us. I mean, we can exhale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we have to help each other remember it. That's why it's nice to have Rosie. Right. To do it together and in community the way you are. I love that. I became obsessed about 10 or 12 years ago with finding what I thought of as the origin of the rosary. Like, where, where does it really yeah, begin? Right. I mean, we can go back and we can say that, you know, some form of the rosary as we pray today was being prayed a thousand years ago, probably even earlier than that. But if you go back further and further and further, you find out something very interesting. Perdita and I, as part of our research for Way of the Rose, we traveled to southern France where we went and... Uh, we did two things basically. We went to see Black Madonnas, right? Those old yeah. statues, beautiful old statues. Talk that, about that. Somewhere. You know, are are so old and are generally black or very dark in color, and so old that they, you know, they could simply be uh, statues of ISIS that were reappropriated by early Christians uh, in France. One of the things that's fascinating about them, we discovered, a lot of people have become reinterested in the Black Madonnas, mm-hmm. and um, the sites of them were often places of devotion that were hundreds of thousands of years old. Yeah, yeah. So that Lourdes, we think of Lourdes, right? Lourdes was a place where they found Paleolithic devotion going yeah. way back. Right. So, you know, so the lady is appearing to Bernadette there. And she's what's kind of a dress. It's like a, almost like a trash heap area it was a trash heap. <laughs> at the time yeah. right it was the rubbish it was, it was the, it was the, the rubbish. rubbish it was the rubbish. she appeared in the rubbish and i always yeah. thank you for bringing that up that's one of my favorite details yeah. and, and bernadette was treated as rubbish in that yeah. culture too she was yeah. she was poor she was and poor and not considered and, and not healthy yeah illiterate, illiterate you know so illiterate and not taken didn't even serious. understand the words that mary was saying to her i mean it was and I always remember, you know, when when the lady first appeared to her, her mother slapped her, you know, and said, just, you know, snap out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I mean, but that was a place of devotion. It was. And when we went, one of my favorite Black Madonnas is Our Lady of Rocamador in France. And she's this skinny little old Black Madonna. And she's just yes. a powerhouse. Yeah, she she's like a crone Madonna. And, mm-hmm. But there is a cave. There's a cave there with cave art 20,000 years old, right? Yeah. Behind right. her. Right. Oh, and that's, a, have, that's a coincidence, right? Coincidence. <laughs> and there is found evidence of hominid remains from 300,000 years yeah. ago. Wow. To this spot, you're there. You're somewhere our ancestors have been going to an havoc encounter with the divine mm-hmm. for as long as we've been human beings. One of the things we discovered, we, we had this wonderful book uh, written by a man who since, who is a wonderful mentor for us, who since uh, passed on, Ian Begg, wrote a book called The Cult of the Black Virgin, which is yeah. to this day the single best book about the Black Madonna. And half of that book is it, like, you know, incredibly scholarly, erudite, well-researched <laughs> ramblings of the Black Madonna. But the whole last half of it is nothing but meticulous descriptions of each uh, Black Madonna he visited, and he and his wife, Dyke, visited them all, and the legends associated with them, descriptions of them, and all that. It's a kind of a gazette. What we discovered was that if you took the maps in that book and you superimposed them over maps showing where Paleolithic goddess figurines had been discovered. They matched up almost perfectly. All right. Well, so these black Madonnas, right? The places where people were devotion to these chthonic dark earth mothers was the strongest. 
was places where that figure had been venerated for tens of thousands of years. The wonderful thing about these statues, which Perdita is always pointing out, is they're all quite small. Yeah. Right? They, their body types are varied. You know, some like the Paleolithic, birds. not the Black Madonnas, the Paleolithic no, no, figures. Paleolithic mm-hmm. uh, goddess figurines from, <laughs> from the Upper Paleolithic. These little stone or clay figurines are quite small, but they're all meant to be held in the hand. Yes. And that was, put up on a pedestal, right? That's they're, right. No. They were portable, right? Yeah. And people carried them with them. And what we discovered was that these really were like the first rosaries. These were yes. people's first experiences of creating something that they could hold themselves in the way that they felt held by the earth, mm. that they felt held by their mother. Mm-hmm. So the experience of holding these figurines, mm. which are found all across the world, only, only female figures, no male. They're all female mother figures. The experience of holding these was much like the experience of holding the rosary today. There's tremendous comfort. Comfort, right. Holding, but also yeah. the feeling of being held at the same time. Hi, I'm so excited to share with you my 2024 Spring Equinox Self-Mothering Retreat that's happening this March 2024. And I would love for you not only to consider it, but to attend. But in considering it, hey, just knowing that you would be leaving cold weather, if that's the space that you're in, and coming down to just magnificently beautiful, warm, nourishing place of Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Zihuatanejo meaning land of the goddess women. And coming to really take time for yourself. Okay, and that I am learning more and more isn't just a nice thing to do or something extravagant or something selfish. It's essential. And I really want you to take it seriously to consider, you know, just think about what would it take for me to go. It's a five and a half day retreat, getting from where you are, getting there, landing there, and then being in a space that is all about you. It's all about nourishing you. It's all about tuning into you, using everything around us, the nature, the food, the beautiful people, the rituals, ceremonies. I bring it, you know, we really bring it. And we go deeper and deeper as the days go on and we release, we let go, we bring in what is nourishing, what is empowering, what is that space of just really divine feminine energy. And we do it in the community of women. It's not for everyone. I will be honest, you know, if the idea of leaving and not making it work or it's just too hard, not for you. If the idea of, you know, spending that amount of time inwardly focused and going to that level of self-awareness doesn't sound like something you're willing to do or put the time and energy into, then it's not for you. And it's good to know that, right? So this is for people who are serious about what it means to mother themselves, what it means to take time for ourselves and that gift and what that gift can bring to us. It was originally right after my fall retreat, it filled right up, but now some people, it turns out, are not able to come. So I do have a handful of openings. And if you're listening to this and you're willing to take that step, please reach out to me. We can do a discovery call or you can put a deposit down. I would love that. And you can do that by going to my website, www.drgertrudelyons.com. 
go to events, and there you go. It'll all be there. There's a beautiful page there for you to explore. I look forward to hearing from you and then seeing you on my spring retreat. That's so beautiful. And I, I think that's what we're seeking, right? And what's been lost and we're, but we're finding ways to find it. And I think that's, you know, I know we're in this, you know, age of extinction and collapse and upset and, but following this yearning, you know, of being held, holding, you know, the, I, I know Perdita, you were saying you we're grateful for my work, you know, and the work of like women reacquainting themselves with the power of mother, you know, and not from a masculine perspective of a job to do, but a space to hold, you know, because the way the great mother, our mother, you know, has been holding it for us and continues no matter what we do. You know, <laughs> you know a question I always have is mothers feel so isolated in our culture, and I don't think mm. they've ever been more burdened than they are right now. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by what it was like to be a mother in those paleolithic goddess devoted times what did it was it like when everyone experienced themselves as the mother of a child mm. who was born into a community and when there were enough mothers to go around when there were aunts and grandmothers in the house and you know it was one of those things like we think that the male spiritual practices are better sometimes they're mm. they look so macho right like i say this because I, you know, did Zen retreats and sat ramrod straight and didn't move all day. And, and to discover that my grandmother held the magic beans, and they really are like magic beans, that mm -hmm. she knew how, very modest woman, right? But she knew how to make put food on the table when there was no money. She knew how to make healing happen mm -hmm. when there was medicine. Right. And that humdrum, ordinary, banal magic is what we need more than ever right now. We need to feel held by that community of mothers, not just among the living, but among the dead. And what would it mean? I think what our what the lady wants us, the initial the rosary has a set of 15 mysteries, and people often are turned off by that who come to the rosary because they think it's kind of like very pious and Christian. Mm. I'm like, oh no, I'm not going back to, you know, yeah, catechism there, there school. There episodes right, right. from life of Mary and Jesus that have come mostly from the Gospels. And so they look very religious on the surface. Sure. Except that they're connected to the ancient mystery cults of the Mediterranean. And rather than telling the story of the Bible or Jesus, mm -hmm. they actually tell the story of a woman becoming a mother, losing her child and resurrecting him. And wow, <laughs> you and know, that and that's wow, an initiation right. for yeah. everybody. Yes. Into what is it? I mean, it, and really, it's an invitation for everyone, male and female, young and old, to think about what would it be? What am I giving birth to? Right. What, what am I, I birthing into the world? And that story is superimposed over a much older story that was told in these ancient mystery cults about the death and uh, rebirth of the land. Right, of yes. through the four seasons, story yeah. of Demeter and Persephone, and you know, it goes on and on. And the descent of Inanna, there are endless myths that predate Christianity and Judaism that describe this cycle that people could witness, you know, just by following the seasons of growth, fruition, you know, death and harvest, decay and rebirth in spring. The rosary tells that same story. 
but it superimposes it over the lifetime of a woman and her son so that it feels very, very personal. Yeah. Uh, modern Christians don't really connect to this very much because they, you know, they, they tend Been to taught. buy the pagan yeah. roots of Christianity. But, you know, <laughs> roots, you know, roots are what nourish a plant. <laughs> totally. you know, cut yourself <laughs> off from the root. You know, that, that's a dead tree. So, you know, the only, uh, you know, these traditions are, uh, if they're rerooted or rewilded, right, they that regain their vitality. Yeah, and I thank you. This is um, we're we're not done. I'm just saying thank you for <laughs> what we've said, what we've talked about, you know, uh, so far. But something you were just saying about, you know, because I was also I was raised Catholic, and you know, the, it, everything was just rote. I I you know can't say I ever you know felt really connected anywhere you know within it until you know as an adult and. I started on my own spiritual journey that, you know, I left Catholicism behind and I don't know, spiritual seeker, you know, the whatnot. And part of that was going on spiritual pilgrimages every year with a non-denominational group and, and whatnot. So I've visited Our Lady of Rockamador and yeah, you know, and Mary apparition sites all over Europe, you know, but particularly the Black Madonna and Spain outside of Barcelona. Why am I forgetting her name? Montserrat. 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 Yeah. I, oh, she was another one of my huge favorites. favorite. I know. Right. Like, isn't it funny? <laughs> she's favorites, but, and, you know, like undeniable experiences, you know, feelings at, at Lords, like the miracle of that water is, you know, something, but my connection there with people. So I've felt this now and, you know, I'm mad at the church for having a whole upbringing and none, I didn't even know these places existed. And I went to Catholic school and high school and college. How can I get through all of that and not know where these, these beautiful places? And, you know, Catholics are a little more acclimated to Mary. They haven't, you know, completely ousted her, but that all of this is happening. And to me, those places give hope because everybody comes from all walks of life and, you know, for healing, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual and coming together in those spaces. And like you said, that our spaces that have been venerated, acknowledged, you know, whether it's earth energy lines, I don't know what brought people there to begin with. I will say that, you know, as you know, this, our devotion to the rosary really came into flowering with our own experience of the presence of the lady and an apparition. I was hoping we could still get to today. (laughs) (laughs) And I will just say that where we live, our little house in the Catskill Mountains is a site right behind our house, our cairns that may be five or 6,000 years old. And And the indigenous people did not con- did not live in Woodstock where we live. They came here out of devotion and the cairns mirror the constellation Draco in the sky. And so we're in the center of that, our actual house. So the appearance of the lady here is, it's like she appears as the land. The land itself mm. is her. Is yeah. her. She, she, mm-hmm. you are meeting the, the mother directly, the mother as the earth. Mm. And she has different feelings. Like Montserrat doesn't feel like Rocamadour, right? It's a different, mm-hmm. and just like the land is They're different. all different. Yeah. And, I've, and they're I've... all different ladies and we love them. I always say like suddenly when there's a mother in charge of the world, there are enough mothers to go around. There are mothers everywhere you look. Yes. And we have a shrine to the apparition uh, here on our property out by the road, shrine to Our Lady of Woodstock, she likes to be called. I'm sorry, could you say the name again? Our Lady of Woodstock. 
We live in Woodstock, New York, okay. and she can take the name of places where she appears. And so there's a statue at the end of our driveway, a life-size statue of her. And people come from all over the world uh, to pray and mm -hmm. to ask for uh, graces and favors and then to in healings and then to come back when their prayers are answered. And we have a book stress. filled with the miracles it, that have already happened there that okay, are I extraordinary. Didn't, I didn't know this aspect. I only knew of you. Now, Clark, did this start out of your, you were the original visitation, right? Do you, can you yes. share about that? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, Such a beautiful 2000, story. 2011, on the night of June 15th, uh, we went out to dinner. We came home. There was a lunar eclipse just before that. I went to bed as I normally do. I woke up four hours later to go for my walk in the middle of the night, which is something I wrote about in Waking Up to the Dark mm -hmm. and I've been doing my whole life. And I put my hand on the doorknob to leave the house. And I felt a hand on my right shoulder and a voice, a male voice said, don't go out tonight. Uh, remain inside and be very, very still. So I, I'm not a person who had heard voices. In fact, my Zen training had told me that all experiences like, you know, locutions, hearing voices, having visions, anything paranormal was called makio or illusion. And you were oh. just simply supposed to meditate straight through it, right? Just bulldoze it right over and suppress it, right? Mm -hmm. Zen team, suppression of, of those sorts of experiences. So, and I had, you know, been a Zen teacher, so I trained other people to do that. So, but something about this, I just didn't feel that I could ignore it. So I didn't go out that night, even though it was very beautiful. I got on the couch and I, you know, I'd been a Zen monk and you had to get very still. So I did it. And after about 45 minutes, I could feel someone with me in the room. You know, even though we were in our house, you know, the door was closed, no one else here, Perdita and the kids upstairs asleep. And I opened my eyes and it was like I was in the middle of a marsh. All I saw was just darkness and two reed stalks blowing. And then the reed stalks vanished. And then their place was the face of a young girl, about maybe 17 years old. Her face was roundish. Her skin was pale. Uh, she had uh, auburn hair and uh, hazel eyes. And she had an X of black electrical tape over her mouth. And uh, I looked at her and my first thought was, oh, yeah, Machia, right? Machia, this is delusion. And so I looked at her for all of about three seconds. And then my Zen career formally ended that night <laughs> in that instant, because I thought, oh, yeah. the Zen masters were like totally wrong. Like this is she's not illusion. If there's an illusion here, it's me, not her. Yeah. He's uh, real. The whole world might be unreal, but she would be real. So. I did what uh, anyone, I think, in that set of circumstances would do. She clearly had not put the tape on herself. She clearly needed it off. So I leaned forward and I pulled the tape off of her mouth. I could feel the resistance of her skin against it as I pulled. And when I did that, she gave a huge gasp, like like she hadn't been able to breathe. Or I described it in the book as like a, a crypt being unsealed after yeah. thousands of air rushing into a vast space. It didn't fit the size of her body. And then I opened my mouth to say the obvious question, who are you? And but she shook her head, you know, saying, no, nothing, nothing can be said now. So I just looked at her. I don't know for how long, mm -hmm. just, that, you know, just me and her right there. And then the Zen monk part of my brain won out again. And uh. I shut my eyes and went back to meditating. When I opened them 45 minutes later, she was gone. But 
I woke up the next morning and I turned the whole house over looking for the electrical tape. Yeah. I was sure I would find it. The experience had been so real. And I continued to feel her presence. And later that year, she began to speak. Later that summer, she began to speak. And, uh, you know, eventually, Perdita began to rant, write down her messages. And all of her messages can be found at wayoftherose.org. And people often ask sort of reverentially, like, you know, what an awe-inspiring experience it must have been for me. And to be perfectly honest, I must admit that I was a little bit more like Bernadette Subaru's mother. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> what? No, no. Yeah. I, you know, we had, it was a really rough time. Um, our daughter was very, very ill. We mm. had, she'd been sick for a year. The doctors told us that something was terribly the matter. And we were going to the best specialists in New York. And no one could tell us why everything was going wrong in her body. Mm-hmm. And that's a terrifying experience as a parent. You're just beside yourself. Yeah. And in the midst of all that, we had lost our main freelance writing client and found our. And so I thought, I can't deal with one more thing. I can't have you <laughs> can't deal with the Mary apparition. The yeah, this, this is not what I need. Ever. But what transformed my experience was I've been Clark's editor for years. I've read everything he's ever written, edited everything he's ever written. And he started to share with me what the lady herself had to say. And I knew my husband, I know what my, I know what he's capable of. And he's a lovely poet, (laughs) but he wasn't capable of this. And it was her words and her messages that for me were life-changing. And those Mm -hmm. messages are available to everyone. They are, many of them are included in Way of the Rose, our book, but they're also available on the website for free and wayoftherose.org. Under Our Lady Speaks, you can find everything she said. And she offers a new message on the 16th of every month. That's what I was going to say. These are continuing for you, yes. right? Like this yeah. is ongoing. Well, I just, you know, I, I read the book and didn't, you know, and as I, that was new news to me as of like probably in the last like week or so. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is still happening. I mean, I was, when I read about it, I felt that you sharing it just now, you know, I was moved to tears and tingled. Like, you know, it's my Western like you said, you, you know, for you, it's Buddhist, you know, for me, it's just, I don't know what it is. It's just fear, I guess, at times to, to be with, but I, I don't let it linger too long. You know, I, I let the sensation in my body, the, that, that presence, you know, from goosebumps to tears is what I decide is real, you know, for me. So, you know, your experience and now, knowing that I can come to Woodstock for a Mary apparition site fix. I, I have not been to one in the United States. So that is definitely going to happen. And um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading about it. And, the, you know, I, I think my final question, and then I want to, we're going to share where everybody can find you because I mean, it's final question for this episode. Let me just say, <laughs> not the final question but for this episode um you speak a lot in you know waking waking up to the dark about how we're in this time but what one thing that really you know turned that was turned on its head for me was because it's not new to me that you know the divine feminine has been suppressed and everything that was related you know to goddess and and all that has been you know turned around and made into like evil or dark or, you know, ugly, but the way you talk about darkness and the importance of it and it, and how it's been treated and turned into evil, turned into, you know, something to avoid where, 
you know, only suffering the, you know, and you, I know we don't have time for you to like go, you know, extensively into it, but I want to, you know, leave us with that and have you share some about that because, you know, and, and just how our world is what it is now because we have too much light. Right. And I've been catching myself and hearing when people say like, Oh, the light in the dark or the dark side or the shadow side. I'm like, it's got a bad, like, no, you know, I just want to say something's wrong. (laughs) I want to tell women and I want to tell women particularly is we don't know that that's been used as a weapon against us and our yeah. bodies and that our wombs are dark places and that, thou, that that darkness within us is where life grows. Space of creation. It's right? a space it's of dark. creation. And it's also what it means to live inside the mystery and the vast, I yes. don't know. And, you know, it's a relief kind of not to have to know, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, you know, I'm a modern person. I like to be in control. I want to drive the car. (laughs) I want to know where we're headed and how we're going to get there. But I sometimes think what the lady says is like, you guys, you guys are like two-year-olds in a parking lot. Just hold my hand. I can't explain this to you, but I can get you through this. But for me that, you know, we have, we have let ourselves be, was the darkness has been demonized. The mystery of creation has been demonized. And most of the cosmos is dark matter. 85% of the cosmos is, we don't even know what it is. Right. You know, the the history of artificial illumination from the first, you know, campfires a million years ago up in, up to where we are now, where basically there's barely any darkness left in some places, yeah. uh, has been a, a history of conquest, right? Light is the, uh, the symbol. Uh, it was even used as a colonialist symbol, right? To bring light to the darkness of yes. lost continents and so forth and so on. So there's this idea that the more light we shine on things, on nature, on ourselves, on our own consciousness, uh, the more sort of awake we are, the more in control we are, the the better we are, you know, the more good yeah. or wholesome or pure or whatever. But in fact, just the opposite of tr- is true. I'm very struck by the fact that Christians, you know, who have done probably as much as anybody else, you know, ideologically to demonize the dark, their given name for for the devil, for Satan, is Lucifer, which means light bringer. All right. So actually, the ultimate evil in Christian symbology is this figure who is an angel of light. Right. And so there's this this sense that that somehow we're going to, you know, illuminate everything. Everything will be known. Everything will be under our control. Mm -hmm. I mean, light is the great symbol of human supremacy and the domination of human beings over nature. And we know where that ends, right? You know, yeah. it's not rocket science. Just read the Bible. It's all there. <laughs> right. The Bible is like a thought experiment, which <laughs> asks the question um, in the first chapters, what happens to a species that claims dominion over the entire world and redesigns it as a theme park for homo sapiens? Where does that lead? Where does that go? The answer is revelation, the end of the world, and the destruction of the planet. But women had a different response. And when they developed the rosary, it was almost an alternative to that vision. It was. And instead of beginning with Genesis and ending with Revelations and Apocalypse, they told a story about birth, death, and rebirth. (laughs) And it was a world that went in a circle, just like the natural world. And it was the world that women understood. 
And that was a world filled with mystery and darkness. Mm -hmm. But with, you know, if we want to see a shooting star, we have to step into the darkness. If we want to return to the land of magic and miracles, we're going to have to take our hands off the steering wheel and not just take our hands off the steering wheel. We're going to have to get out of the car. Yeah. <laughs> you know right? what I mean? Like, Find a new road. Right. Yeah, I think you say that in woods. your book. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot. It's hard. It's a frightening moment. I mean, believe me, I struggle with it myself perpetually. Mm. And yet when we there are times in our lives, we have to surrender illness, tragedy, Sure. And then you know, it's just like you remembered praying the rosary for your mother's biopsy, right? Mm -hmm. Like suddenly at that moment, this is what I need. Yeah. I am inside mystery. There's yeah. nothing I can do to control this moment. And that's what we discovered with our daughter's illness. And we went to our lady of Roca Medora and said, mm. help. The doctors have no answers. The best, most wise doctors have no answers. And within a month of coming home, she, she, was, got she got a diagnosis. Yeah. Wow. You know, you know, so I mean, to be both grateful and as you say that, like, of course she did, you know, I'm trying yeah. to hold that more. It's like, oh my God, thank goodness. And of course, right. When like, that's possible, you know, it, it is, it's possible. And I want to affirm that possibility as much as I possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is really hard to close out this particular <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but I think we touched on and covered. So now in future ones, we can go even deeper in, into some of these aspects. But, you know, hearing the two of you, you know, speak what I've been reading um, and, you know, feel it and the way you embody it is just huge honor, pleasure to be with Marianne Williamson last night in my home. So we had, oh, a, yeah, it was beyond, right? Like, and uh, And to share and hear her. And there was so many striking things that she said, but one that, you know, I'm hearing, you know, through our conversation is, you know, nothing, the miracles don't happen with the majority agreement, right? Like a majority isn't, is never going to bring world peace is never going to, you know, change our country. We just, but we, we do need a critical mass, right. And, you know, the way of the rose and <laughs> you know, aspects like that, that are, you know, working toward hundredth monkey of this reality, um, as it so is what I also believe is what's gonna take us out of this or move us. You Horse know, and miracles was to... a big influence yeah, on sure part. Was. Oh <laughs> and, and I just I thought it for a while. Wow. I just want to add that the you know, Perdita alluded to this, but the the rosary doesn't end the way the Bible ends. In the Middle Ages, yeah. the priest tried to get the, the ordinary people to end it with the last judgment, but the people rejected that. And so the last two mysteries of the of the rosary tie it off in a circle. So you have the assumption and the coronation of Mary as queen of heaven and earth, young again with a little baby in her arms, after which the whole thing starts, starts over again. And uh, so it's, uh, it is, you know, it's like the nope. basic of gospel of hope and redemption and return and renewal. It's that old pattern, you know, that the mysteries taught. But yeah, we have yeah. we're gonna have to find that old rhythm and that old yes. and also and also create Clark and I talk a lot. You tell us to shut up. A, a belief sphere. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I hear you talking how do we create a belief sphere of magic and miracles? And I don't mean that tritely. No. I mean we don't have the answer. Our, the tech, I do not trust Silicon Valley to solve the problems we're facing as nope. a planet right now. Nope, nope. 
I think it's going to come from the radical faith of simple people. A hundred percent. No, I'm, I'm so with you. And, uh, I love doing this because now a whole bunch more people get to hear this message, you know, connect with you connect, you know, I hope many, many of them and myself included are going to find their way to way of the rose. Absolutely. So can you speak out loud, even though it'll be in show notes when, when the episode comes out, you know, what is, what are the best ways to make contact and learn more and hear more? Well, we have a website that's filled with materials called wayoftherose.org. And that will have everything from our ladies' messages to how to pray the rosary to tons of stuff is there. Mm -hmm. And how to connect with meetings. But the other thing is we also offer daily rosary circles. Those are all free, leaderless. Come bring and pray the prayers. Change whatever words you want. Uh, Meetings have different flavors, but they're all very um, much the same where people pray the rosary for their heart's desire together in a spirit of friendship and zoom phone. And even in person circles are about 10 to 15 meetings a day. So you can usually find one time zone that works for you. Um, If you've been to a meeting, you can start a meeting. It's very relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're, you're intentionally doing it that way, which I appreciate, you know, well, our next book is called circles, not lines, spiritual community beyond patriarchy. Mm. So perfect. And so we've really been trying to think about how to create really radically inclusive spiritual community. That's not leaderless. No, that is leaderless. 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 We also have a very thriving Facebook group called way of the rose. And that's a place where people can find support to pray the novena, inspiration, friendship, art, art, you know, a lot of people find it. Yeah. Yeah, we have. Uh, I love that. A lot of people are on Facebook just to be part of Way of the Rose. Right. Yes, oh, and we're also here in Woodstock, New York, and the lady is right on the road, a mile from the center of the town. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and every day there are people out there. We go to the end of our driveway. And, How and beautiful! Oh my gosh! And on oh. June sixteenth, the anniversary of the apparition, it'll be the twelfth anniversary this year. We have a feast day here in Woodstock. We invite oh. everyone to join us. People come from all over the world. We rent a big tent and our whole. And we uh, just all pray the rosary and, together. And there's yeah. a big fair and people. We have tarot readers and Music, people make rosaries. There's singing and dancing and a lot of children and many children and the kids. And our goal is for the children and the teenagers to have the best time ever and want to come back. So (laughs) (laughs) then, who cannot like it, right? Like, (laughs) so I always end my podcast with one last question, and because I love hearing, because every response, and I know yours will be such. is enlightening to me. So as you know, you know, my platform is rewrite the mother code. So what does rewrite the mother code mean to you? I sent you a quote that our lady said, and she gave it on Christmas. It was her Christmas message, I believe. Mm -hmm. And she said, I invite you all male and female, young and old to join me in mothering the world. We are all together. We are all one mother of the world. And I think to rewrite the mother code is what would it be if everyone would have what if teenage boys aspired to be good mothers? Isn't that the image of St. Joseph and St. Anthony holding mm-hmm. them to their arms? They're aspiring to be good mothers. Mm-hmm. And I, my to rewrite the mother code is to make it not just biological motherhood, but what does it mean to be a mother in the world? I think of your grandfather. Thank you. Thank you. 
rosary praying grandfather, right? <laughs> I think, you know, the, I think for women to rewrite the mother code, well, for many women, that means becoming a mother, right? Mm -hmm. Or acting as a mother or supporting mothers or a lot of ways for women to do that. I think men sometimes uh, feel themselves off to the side because that's mm -hmm. where the culture wants to put them. Yes. Wants to sideline them from family, from intimacy, from tenderness, from all the, the, you know, the sort of virtues that Perdita described in a wholesome sense as dark, right? Or mysterious yeah. or comforting, the tactile. Men are sidelined from that, but they don't have to be. And uh, there was a great, great history of devotion going back thousands of years. All the earliest legends about the rosary show mostly men coming to the lady, offering her flowers, offering her prayers, mm. and performing great acts of, of tenderness and generosity. So for, I think for men, rewriting the mother code is allowing themselves to express a spirit of devotion uh, to the lady and to the feminine. And then accept her embrace. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both so much. This has been such a, a pleasure and, and privilege. And I look forward to seeing you, podcasting, all the, all the different ways we're going to. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gertrude. Thank you, thank you so much for having us on. <laughs> Thank you so much for choosing yourself and taking the time to listen to this podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother. Wait, no, subscribe to Mother Her. It helps other people who need this message, aka all women, well, actually everybody, men included, find it. I'm honored to have you on this journey in mothering yourself. Remember, change is uncomfortable, but it's beautiful and it starts with us. And if you can't wait until next week's episode, follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Dr. Gertrude Lyons or at my website, drgertrudelyons.com. I'll see you next time.